Welcome to Oncology Today, the role of PARP inhibitors in the management of ovarian cancer. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Thomas Herzog from the University of Cincinnati. In addition to this interview, there's also a corresponding program featuring Dr. Herzog's slide presentation. To begin, I asked them to provide some perspective on how these valuable agents have been incorporated into clinical practice. PARP inhibitors have probably been the biggest game changer in ovarian cancer in the last decade. And so what we saw was the first approval in 2014, so we're now eight years into being able to use these agents clinically. And the first approval was actually with Laparib for beyond third-line treatment. And what we found then was that there was a big interest in trying to look at these agents in the maintenance phase. And so the first look at that was actually in platinum-sensitive maintenance patients. And so we had study 19, which was one of the original studies that was all comers for Laparib, but it was only a phase two. But then we had uh, a number of phase threes that led to FDA approval for PARPs in platinum-sensitive maintenance. So we had the NOVA trial, which was the first one to come out. Uh, and then we had uh, Ariel 3 and Solo 2. And those trials looked at niraparib for NOVA. Ariel 3 was Recaparib, And Solo 2 was Olaparib, but only in patients with a BRCA mutation. And so when we then got those approvals and, and then other PARPs such as Recaprib got approved for beyond, uh, third line and beyond, and then we had finally approval with Quadra with Neraprib for treatment, you now had the ability to use these PARP inhibitors in later lines of therapy. But many of us thought that probably the biggest bang for the buck was going to be in frontline. And so at ESMO in uh, 2018, Katie Moore presented the Solo One, which was looking at using a laparib in patients with a BRCA mutation in frontline. We then had the following year in 2019 in Barcelona, we had three presentations at the presidential session of ESMO, which is pretty impressive. And two of those led to approvals. So one was the uh, Prima study for niraparib for frontline across all biomarker subtypes. And then we had the elaparib plus BEV indication that was uh, approved for all patients except those who did not demonstrate homologous recombinant deficiency. So HRD was positive. So that's where we were uh, up until ASCO in 2022 for frontline, which um, added rucaparib into the mix. And that's a fairly complicated studies forearm study with two objectives. One, to see if Caprib indeed improved progression-free survival for patients in the frontline setting. And the second one was to look at nivolumab to see if the combination of nivolumab and the PARP uh, actually added uh, benefit. So the only data available for the presentation in, in, uh, by Dr. Monk at ASCO was the mono. Uh, looking at recaprib versus placebo. And indeed, there was a significant improvement uh, in PFS. And so the data across all subgroups uh, looked very promising uh, with recaprib in the Athena model. So that, that would give us a lot of options for upfront if that led to FDA approval. Thus far, it has not led to FDA approval. 
the agency has requested that there be more maturity, and we'll, we can talk more about that for the OS endpoint in that data set. Just around the time that the data was being presented with through Capra that you just referred to, was around the time we started to see Dear Doctor letters. And I think probably that was connected to, I mean, I thought it, it looked like the data from Athena really matched up well to what we'd already seen between Olaprib and Neraprib. And I was all excited that there was going to be another option. And then surprising to me, I was surprised the FDA didn't approve it. And it seemed like it was tied into some of these things that were going on about trials with uh, later stage disease. Is that your take about why it was not approved? Yeah, I think that that was part of the, you're right. I think it got swept into a bigger movement uh, than what we would normally have seen. I think had this data come out a year ago, it may have been a very different story. I I know about uh, a little over a year ago, the FDA started looking at the accelerated approval process very closely. Uh, as you know, and we we had met with them regarding GYN uh, oncology trials. And at that point, we had never had a, a dangling approval nor a retraction. So we were pretty happy with that, thinking that everything was fine. But they started looking at OS. And, and you know, this really goes back quite a ways because we, we started talking to, to the FDA and uh quite a while ago in terms of what is an appropriate endpoint for frontline and even platinum-sensitive ovarian cancer because you have such long post-progression survivals. And to preserve those, you need an incredibly large clinical trial number to be able to do that. And we had seen a dearth of new investigations, if you will. We went almost a decade with really only two approvals. One was conversion of pegylated liposomal doxorubicin to full approval from an accelerated approval and and, and an approval of gemcitabine along with carboplatinum and platinum-sensitive disease. Uh, And that's all we had had. And we were concerned that uh, industry was telling us that they felt that the agency's stance was that OS was necessary uh, and we went to the agency and they said, well, that's actually not the case, but we need to talk about it. And so out of that came a workshop uh, that was sponsor- co-sponsored by SGO and uh, AACR and ASCO. And I uh, had the pleasure of uh, co-chairing that. And, and so we had a, a tremendous dialogue with the FDA about the importance of surrogate endpoints such as progression-free survival in that setting. And they agreed that that was an appropriate endpoint with clinical benefit. And my concern and the concern of other thought leaders has really been that is this now going to be a retraction of that position and we were hoping to have an ODAC to talk about it, um, but that ODAC uh, recently that had been scheduled and it was canceled. So I think that that's really been for us um, somewhat uh, frustrating because we feel that uh, looking at these non-analytical endpoints that were underpowered and are not balanced and looking at, you know, crossover that is as high as almost 90% in some of these trials makes it really difficult to 
be able to, to say that there's a detriment in overall survival. And what is that detriment? You know, what degree are we looking at? And we haven't been able to get that answer. So I think, you know, further dialogue with the FDA would be helpful in terms of better understanding the opinions behind this. Could you uh, clarify a little bit about the issue that has a rate, uh, come up related to the issue of survival in these uh, later line trials and what your take is on it? And I guess the first thing before you get into that would be um, the issue of are there any feasible reasons why you might see worse survival? And I guess the one that comes up would be you know, the development of second cancer, specifically AML and MDS. So do we know to what extent, if any, that factored into the fact that a number of these trials seem to show survival going the wrong direction? Yeah, we, we think that that would be negligible based on the data we're seeing from the long-term data from Palo 1, for example, the long-term data from Solo 1, um, and even the updated PFS data that we've seen from TOX from Prima. So we don't think that that's it certainly could contribute, but not enough to, to really make a big difference. I think one theory that's out there that would be concerning, of course, is that the exposure to PARPs uh, then can potentially make subsequent exposure to DNA damaging agents less responsive. So those cells become less responsive. Perhaps we're, we're selecting out clones uh, that uh, are resistant uh, and that's one of the concerns. And that's certainly a theoretical concern that needs to be looked at. So I'm not dismissive of the fact that this this is important and that, you know, first do no harm. I think that that's, it's really important that we understand that. However, when you look at the OS data, um, Arial 4, I think, is a, a beautiful example uh, of that, where uh, th this trial was largely done in a non-U.S. population. And in platinum-sensitive disease, Almost half the patients, 45% of the patients, did not receive subsequent therapy because of the customs and the, the regulatory environment in the country in which they were treated, largely Eastern European. And so that it, it's so non-typical for what would happen in the United States. And so if they had received, there's just so many things there. And then the crossover, as I said, was up to 89%. So how, how do you really, when there's such long you know, there's no, there's years between the intervention and then the, um, you know, not so much for aerial four, but, but for example, the frontline and even in the platinum sensitive maintenance trials, there's years between those and many, many months, uh, in, in most all cases, even in the later line treatment trials that they're getting treated with other active agents they are getting treated with other things. So it needs to be looked at. Uh, but a lot of this data will be very difficult to recover. Uh, there's some, you know, there's, there's dropout, there's all kinds of uh, issues with getting granular data for some of the questions that we want to answer. In terms of this apparent adverse effect on survival, does it apply to all three drugs? Well, I think that what we've seen is there's been uh, less of an effect with a Laparib than there has been uh, with the others, but I, I honestly think that that is more from just the uh, way those trials were conducted, more than there is a difference between the PARPs in terms of efficacy. Um, so I, I personally don't think, I think it's more of a class effect than anything else. Um, but if you, if you go through each of the HCP letters, 
Uh, I think that remember that, for example, with with Solo 2, that was only done in, in germline. So we don't have as much data on those HRP type patients, for example, uh, in that setting. You'd have to really generalize from the the phase two, which was study 19, which you know, obviously a much smaller data set. And these uh, later line trials, were they generally monotherapy or were they monotherapy or were they uh, the use of, uh, you know, patients who were responding to platinum, platinum sensitive, followed by maintenance? Well, it was a mixture. We can certainly go through those. But for example, Solo 3 was uh, monotherapy up against uh, physician's choice chemo. And in that particular case, it's a little odd because these patients were platinum sensitive in Solo 3, yet they were not using a platinum. You, you could use uh, any of the non-platinum agents in that setting, um, such as pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, gemcitabine, uh, paclitaxel. So I, I think it's a little bit um, unnatural with that particular trial. However, if you look at uh, Aerial 4, which I just talked about, that would be also monotherapy, but it's up against, in the case of those that uh, were more than 12 months out, they received platinum uh, plus uh, one of those agents. So that was the control arm, was, was a platinum-based chemo versus monotherapy part. Is there any reason that uh, a physician should be concerned about using any of these three PARP inhibitors in the platinum sense of situation as maintenance? Well, uh, the FDA just said there is. Uh, with, with uh, you know, we've seen with Nova now that uh, that was the first to fall, um, what, three weeks ago or so, they retracted that label for um, patients that were not germline BRCA mutated, which um, we were very surprised um, that, that it didn't get extended to at least the HRD for, for use. Uh, so again, we have serious concerns about that. I think um, time will tell, and there's a lot of efforts right now in terms of trying to get the right data before the FDA uh, that hopefully uh, can be reconsidered. Do I personally have concerns? I don't. For the HRD population especially, I don't have concerns. Um, the HRP population probably is a little uh, less clear in terms of benefit. I guess one of the issues, um, you know, I'm trying to read uh, the way the GYN investigators, including you, are kind of, you know, reacting to all this. And uh, from my kind of macro perspective, I guess to me, one of the things that really colors the conversation, for example, about uh, Rucaprib not being approved in the primary maintenance settings is you have alternatives. And I think, you know, you have alternatives also in the platinum-sensitive situation, so my sense is that the investigators kind of understand why the FDA is thinking the way they are. Maybe they don't completely agree with it, but they maybe understand it, but are not that upset because there's still the opportunity to use other uh, PARP inhibitors in the primary situations where you see a lot of benefit, which is, of course, primary maintenance, but also, I think, platinum-sensitive relapse. Yeah, I don't disagree that, with you, that, and I think that... I think the biggest thing to me in terms of the take home is that these most investigators now uh, see the value of using the PARPs earlier, especially if there is a molecular signal, uh, certainly a BRCA mutation and likely an HRD uh, molecular marker that's positive. 
in those cases, I think most people feel that the benefit is so great in terms of, you know, you do hazard ratios of, say, 0.43, 0.5, you'll see in this individual studies in the HRD group that you're purchasing a tremendous number of progression-free months because it's frontline, it's upfront. So the, the purchase, the value to the patient is so great. So I think there's a lot, uh, you know, the idea of using it for treatment would, where someone was part naive would be, would be in a very special circumstance where they were likely treated by someone that was a very low volume treater and wasn't aware of testing and so forth. So we don't see those patients uh, very often anymore. And, and my hope is we hardly ever see them as we move forward. So hopefully it'll even take some of the pressure off of platinum sensitive maintenance, whereas most of these patients will have seen a PARP up front. Brings into the question though of PARP after PARP and, and the benefits there. And, and we have some data, but not a lot of data. Uh, that that uh, tells us it's probably okay to use it, um, but uh, the benefit may not be as great as we had hoped. You brought up this issue of PARP after PARP, and of course we've seen some data on that. I guess the Oreo study is the one that I'm familiar with. Can you talk about yeah. what they looked at there, or what they saw, and kind of what you think it means? Yeah, the, so the Oreo trial was a uh, trial that was... Um, Patients that had previously received a PARP, and then they're now getting, um, so this is now down the road, they're still platinum sensitive, so they receive a platinum-based therapy, and they then have to respond to this platinum-based therapy. Um, some of these patients were heavily pretreated, meaning they had a fairly responsive uh, phenotype in, in, in terms of uh, continued response. They, they broke the trial into two cohorts, one being BRCA mutated and then non-BRCA mutated. And then they randomized two to one, the Olaparib versus placebo. So you had about 70-some patients in the treatment arms in each of those two cohorts uh, and, and, and roughly 35 or so patients in the uh, placebo arm, if you will. They they saw some fairly impressive hazard ratios in the, you know, 0.5 four, five to 0.55 range uh, with those cohorts. The problem was getting back to what we were talking about in terms of time that was purchased, it was fairly little. In fact, we saw, I think, only an improvement of 1.5 months, although it was statistically significant. But clinically, you know, how valuable is that? So I think my take on, on that trial is really this. If, if you're a believer in PARP after PARP and you want to have the patient disprove to you that she's not going to respond, you have evidence now that you can do that. Uh, and, and there appears to be a clinical benefit that's statistically significant. If you're not a believer in PARP after PARP, um, you can cite the relatively small improvement in the median and say, well, uh, I, I don't know if, there, if it's worth it. Um, and, and therefore, you'd have some evidence to stand on and not retreating them. Personally, as an academician, I'm not very impressed with the median gain. As a treater, though, when someone's before me and they have a mutation and they had a long PARP exposure before, which there's some things you can tease out if they had not, if they didn't have visceral metastasis, and if they had uh, longer exposure to PARP on that front time, front line that they got it or, or the previous time that they received it. Um, and this would have been patients that were platinum sensitive when this trial was being conducted maintenance. 
you then would have, um, I think, an opportunity to re-expose the patient to a part. So if someone's sitting before me as a patient, uh, I really would want to see if she had a, a BRCA mutation and she had that long exposure, uh, I, would re- I would offer her uh, PARP after PARP. So let's get into some of the practical issues that come up in these scenarios. Great. So this was a, a lady that came in, had a CT scan showing large volume ascites. Uh, her symptoms were very clear that she had uh, large volume disease that was present uh, and uh, uh, fairly widespread uh, imaging supported that. So um, she had uh, paracentesis that had been performed. And what we did was found that she had high grade serous and made the decision to treat her with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So, you know, when patients come into you with ovarian cancer, there's certain decisions that you need to make uh, pretty quickly. One, are you going to use bevacizumab, yes or no, uh, with chemotherapy? And the first decision is really surgical. When are you going to go in and, and do uh, a surgical cytoreductive procedure on this patient? And in this case, we felt that Um, the chances for uh, all tumor clearance would be fairly low uh, with uh, the the disease in the mesentery on the surface of a lot of the uh, bowel and and so forth. So we felt that doing neoadjuvant chemotherapy was the way to go. So she received three cycles. CA-125 fell with that significantly. We went in, did surgery, midline incision, um, and, and TH, BSO, omentectomy, um, and, and so forth. And I believe that this was a case we used the argon laser, uh, which we typically do on that. And it, it, peritoneal stripping is very common with, with this and so forth. And so we were able to get her, uh, down to a good place in terms of uh, all the gross disease, I believe, was, uh, ablated or removed. Uh, she had, it was known to have hypertension. It was well controlled. Um, performance status is zero. You can see her very high CA-125 of over 2,100. And she had genetic testing uh, that was done, it was BRCA wild type. If I could uh, just follow up with a couple of questions. First of all, you know that she's BRCA wild type. What specific uh, assays do you typically do? Do you use just germline panel? Do you use NGS to look for somatic also? Do you use both? Yeah, we're a little bit of... Uh, we're, we're a little complicated. It little depends on the patient, insurance, and so forth. We, we, we always get germline um, at, at some level, especially if, obviously, if the tumor comes back BRCA, then we have to go to germline because that sets up cascade testing and also uh, testing and screening for the patient herself in terms of other cancers and, and so forth. So we always get that information at, at a minimum. And another uh, question relevant to this is the question of neoadjuvant therapy versus not. Uh, this lady seemed like she had, you know, kind of obvious uh, large volume disease. But in, you know, less clear-cut cases, uh, how do you make that decision? Do you, do you or uh, use laparoscopy, for example? I do. Uh, the other advantage of using laparoscopy, Neil, is that um, what we find sometimes doesn't happen that often, but um, maybe 10, 15% of the time 
you can actually do neoadjuvant chemotherapy after maybe you've just gotten cytology or a small core from the omentum. You didn't send it for any analysis in terms of tumor. And by the time you do your neoadjuvant, say, say the patient scheduling-wise or whatever, once, uh, many times the, these patients, I uh, shouldn't say many, but it's not infrequent that these patients will receive four cycles chemo, for example, before you go in. And we'll find that all the tumor is necrotic and pathology is unable then to process for any molecular changes, um, which is good for the patient in the sense that she's had a tremendous response. Uh, but not so good in terms of accurate treatment planning. And so for those reasons, um, if it's borderline, uh, I will often uh, do laparoscopy, not only to determine if I, can, if I think I can resect everything, but also I can get a big chunk of tissue at that time, even if I'm going to go ahead and do neoadjuvant. And now I've got, uh, I'll have all that information uh, very quickly. Interesting. Um, another question I have is in what situations, if any, do you uh, use BEV uh, with chemo as part of neoadjuvant treatment? Yeah, great question. So I think you'll find that there's centers and, and even within centers, there's disagreement. There's some physicians and some centers who tend to use BEV in almost everyone. And there's some centers and physicians who use BEV very rarely. Um, I'm in the probably the bigger group, which tends to use it in those patients that we consider high risk, basically from the analysis that was done on OS uh, after ICON-7, which was a frontline BEV trial, uh, looking at patients that seem to have an OS benefit, um, and, you know, those with large tumor volumes, stage 4 disease, uh, ascites, pleural effusions, and we know how well Bevacizumab does in terms of drying up those effusions. And so that, to me, is the biggest challenge for these patients. You have someone like this who's now becoming nutritionally challenged because of the large volume of CITES. Um, and then she didn't have a big problem with it, but many of our patients do that are in this setting. They also have pleural effusions that are clinically an issue. So they're having trouble sleeping, laying flat. They're having trouble breathing and doing any uh, activities that have exertion. So I think because of that, um, I, I always use BEV in those settings. Nationwide, the, the number is somewhere between 40 and 50%. If, if you look at stage three, stage four ovarian cancer, uh, a little less than half the patients uh, receive BEV based on the data I've most recently seen. So then she did well and normalized her CA-125. I, I believe it was down, uh, I don't think we got it less than 10, but it's somewhere under 15, I think it was 11 or 12. And so would you give maintenance therapy to this patient? And, and by indication, you know, yes, a laparib wouldn't be indicated because she's uh, BRCA wild type and we don't have information on our HRD in this particular case. Um, Neraparib, you could certainly do. Recaparib, not, not approved at this point. Bev, you could continue the Bev. Um, could you give Bev plus PARP? Well, you, you know, you have um, some data with Neraparib and Bev that's phase two landmark analysis that, you know, we're, we're seeing in print. It'll be interesting to see if that changes compendium guidelines, but right now that would not be uh technically indicated, although probably be able to be done. And then other people would say, no, I would just watch and, and follow this patient closely. 
And so those are all the, the so the, the real options there are really Bev, um, Neraprib, or Observation. And, and so I think that that's sort of the discussion uh, with the patient uh, that you have at this point. Now we got we went ahead and tested and got the HRD. So she uh, had the optimal cytoreduction. reduction. Uh, you can see she does have hypertension, um, but it was well controlled. Um, she got seven cycles. And uh, the other thing is how often do you give the BEV with the with chemo? And I know some people with neoadjuvant omit the BEV completely. For the first few cycles, I'm not a believer in that. I actually believe that's the time that you most need it because you really want to quickly get that large volume of CITES. And if there's a pleural effusion under control as quickly as possible, because it allows the patient to stay on chemo on the schedule. Um, there's no delays. They don't get admitted to the unit for something else. Um, and, and so I think it's important to try to keep keep that going as much as possible. You do certainly want to be mindful of the fact that you don't want to use bevacizumab within 28 days uh, of uh, surgery uh, on either end for wound healing. Um, and you don't know if you're going to be doing a bowel resection and so forth. So um, we do omit it uh, uh, very often uh, before that as well. Um, and then in this case, she was an R0, and then she had the myriad test showing uh, that she was HRD positive. And I don't believe we had a score there, um, but it would have been above 42. So we, in this case, we just added the elaprid uh, to the BEV, uh, which would certainly be reasonable uh, and, and obviously the easiest thing to do. Um, continues on treatment. I saw her a few weeks ago and was still doing well, tolerating uh the uh, Alaparib well, I believe, or, yeah, her Bev is off uh, uh, now. She's just on Alaparib. How long has she been on Alaparib, and how long are you planning to treat her for? I think she's on, uh, she's about month 18 or 19, uh, somewhere in there. Um, so we'll take her to two years uh, and then have that discussion of stopping, which I encourage them to do based on the, the trials. I have some patients who can't wait to come off because they may have had a short break and they say, boy, I really feel a lot better when I'm not on this. And then I've had other patients that are, you know, they're in support groups, they read the literature and, and no disease at 24 months and all the large volume disease that she had, she knows she's uh, in uh spot that is very different than what would have looked like three to five years ago when we wouldn't uh, been able to offer her a PARP. Does that mean patients like that like to continue? They do. They're very, I wouldn't even say superstitious, but they're very uh, concerned uh, that removing the PARP uh, could allow the disease to come back. Yeah, you hear the same thing about, you know, long-term endocrine therapy and breast cancer. The patients start to, you know, feel very, very comfortable with it. So this lady had no GI issues, no cytopenias, just cruised right through it? Oh, I wouldn't say that. Um, but, you know, we're fairly used to uh, dealing with that. She didn't have any major issues. I think she started off, we, we start everyone on a regimen for GI in terms of nausea and vomiting to try to prevent that in the first place. And we have them continue it. Um, and if they're not having any side effects, I have them continue uh, with that. Um, we usually use a 5-HT3 
uh, drug, and and uh, we we go forward with that. Eating, uh, with, you know, the aloprib is obviously twice a day um, versus niraprib once a day. Uh, eating it with fatty foods uh, appears to be a benefit as well in terms of nausea and vomiting. With niraprib, not obviously in this case. We found that, uh, you know, there's different ways you can do it in terms of I try to have them start with eating it uh, uh, with with food. Um, surprisingly, I've had patients that have done better with it in the morning, uh, and yet other patients have done much better with it in the evening. Uh, I had some patients where we tried something totally different and had them take it right before they go to bed. They kind of sleep through that a little bit. And, and so I think you just have to play a little bit with the timing uh, and uh, occasionally the dose, but uh, I always start with the timing first to see if we can overcome those issues. Just to get back to the issue of duration of treatment, uh, do you follow sort of the trial approaches? You know, Niraparib was used for three years, Olaparib for two years. I'm not sure exactly why that was done. Um, a lot of people in practice just do that. Do you do that or you individualize it more? Yeah, I, th I think since the concerns came out, although, you know, we're pretty happy with the frontline numbers with myelodysplastic syndrome and AML, uh, I tend to follow the trial more for uh, prote protecting uh, myself, I guess, to some degree. If we're varying from that, I make a note in the chart that a discussion was had about the concerns of continuing and uh, so forth. Um, yeah, the, the difference between the two is interesting. Um and, and uh, you know, does that make sense to, to continue? I know uh, talking at some of the folks at Memorial, um, even with Niraparib, uh, I believe, uh, I don't want to speak for them, but I've, a couple people have told me they're shutting it down at two years, uh, even though the trial went to three years with their patients. Uh, at least having that conversation at that point and documenting if the patient wants to continue, then uh, that's all documented. I'm curious in this patient who got neoadjuvant chemo slash Bev, what you would have done if her HRD was not positive? She was, you know, HRP. Yeah, I would have done. A, yeah, I, I, I would have continued the Bev. Likely, um, um, as far as a recommendation, but I would have. I, I think that there's a lot of equipoise there in terms of, you know, for example, Neil, if someone, someone has a BRCA mutation. Um, I'm probably going to be an advocate for PARP versus just presenting the data and doing the shared decision model, if you will. Uh, in the case of the person who we think is homologous recombination proficient, um, I, I think there's some benefit to BEV. We're already on BEV if she's tolerating it well. Uh, and this lady had hypertension, but we really didn't have any problems with it. It's certainly not like what we see with some other drugs, uh, linvatinib, for example, where we have quite a bit of uh, you know, things that we really need to be much more aggressive with the hypertension control. And, and if she's tolerating it well, I think BEV would have probably been, but it would have been a soft recommendation versus, uh, you know, she said, look, I'm really tired of all this. And then I would have probably said, well, why don't we try a few more cycles of BEV? If you're not happy, we'll stop there. And that, that would have been it. Um, and, and that would probably have been the most likely uh, outcome there. For a patient who is, you know, more oriented around minimizing her chance of recurrence and maybe, as you say, some of the patients who really try to get into literature. I mean, I'm sure you've had patients or physicians, even oncologists, 
would you be open to using a Narapra plus Bev? Yeah, I mean, I think, you, you know, from the Avario data, you, you have uh, data that, that at least from as best you can tell from that type of trial, um, it looks to uh, reflect the activity that we would see uh, with Alapra plus Bev largely. Um, and there's no reason to think Narapra would be inferior. So I, I wouldn't have a problem um, uh, considering that and, and, in fact, have done that on occasion, but it's pretty rare. You know, one other thing, getting back to the Athena trial that I personally thought was really interesting and reassuring, you know, until the Athena trial, we all, as far as I know, we only had one study uh, looking at HR proficient, the Prima study with Neraparib that showed a benefit. And um, it was, to me, it was reassuring. I think it looked like exactly the same thing with Rucaparib. Was that your take? Yeah, in fact, you know, the hazard ratios, you can't compare across trials. There's differences between those trials, obviously, but they looked at least as good, in fact, numerically better. So it really is uh, um, good news. The other trial that, that some people look at is a similar trial uh, to Prima that was done in China, uh, the prime trial that came right. out. And, and that reinforces the same thing you're saying, uh, that those HRP patients do have some benefit now, um, it's an imperfect test. Uh, so many people say, well, it, it's just picking up patients that are HRD that, you know, those were false negative uh, tests, if you will. Um, so. I don't know if you know, but there's a recent data in prostate cancer with PARP. And interestingly, it, you see benefit with uh, Olaparib in HR proficient and not with Neuraparib in prostate, which kind of makes you wonder whether or not this is really just a PARP issue. It doesn't really matter which PARP inhibitor that, uh, but then the other question is why, why do you see benefit in HR provision patients? What do you think is going on? Yeah. Well, I think for ovary, my understanding with prostate, um, and, and I'm totally out of my lane here. So push me back in quickly, but the H HRP, uh, um, Population. I think one of the things with prostate is it seems like it's a little more dependent on some of the related genes. You know, the the uh, ATM, uh, BRIP, um, RAD51C, RAD51D, and so forth. Whereas those are somewhat important in ovary, but it seems like that genomic instability is more important in ovary than it is in prostate. Um, and and so I do think it's the you can look at the cutoffs. I think. You know, for example, in the, the Velia trial that looked at Viliparib, they used a, a lower cutoff of, of 33 versus uh, 42. Uh, if you look at the receiver operating curve, if you just eyeball it, it looks like a good place to cut it would have been around 38. So are you, are you actually getting patients that had a score of 38, 39, 40, 41? They're getting classified as HRP. I would fully expect that those patients are going to respond. And I, I, that, to me, is probably the largest contributor to, the, to that group. And I, I'm sure there's other mechanisms that we don't understand as well that are contributing also. Really interesting. Um, let's go into your next case. Okay, so this is a 52-year-old who presented with a large pelvic mass uh, it's complex, meaning that uh, it's not a simple cyst. There, there's uh, solid elements to this tumor. 
She had uh, some very small volume ascites. Uh, it was not clinically apparent, no fluid wave, nothing like that. She had high-grade uh, serous histology. CA-125 was elevated. She had a performance status of zero. Um, you can see the genetic testing uh, that was done there, uh, showing that she had tumor BRCA positive, um, of course, uh, HRD positive as well. She had underwent primary cytoreduction. So this is a lady who we were pretty confident uh, based on imaging that there was not a lot of carcinomatosis or anything like that. And indeed, that's what we found. Um, so she had some omental involvement, um, uh, but not even the classic omental cake where the entire omentum is infiltrated with tumor. Uh, it was more focal, but she did have... Um, it was greater than two centimeter implants in the omentum. So she was a stage 3C. The omentum, interestingly, though, on her left side uh, is where most of this was, and it was densely adherent to the spleen. So we ended up having to do a splenectomy on her uh, as we traced that up. So her incision kept getting longer and longer uh, towards her xiphoid as we did the procedure. We were thinking uh, we wouldn't have to go that high, but we did that to fully get that omentum uh, in the disease that was uh, related to that out. She underwent carbopaclitaxel times six. CA-125 was uh, 7.1 uh, after six cycles, which is important because we know normalizing that uh, portends a better prognosis. So there's a picture of her high-grade serous cancer there, and then the question of what would you do in terms of maintenance. So here's sort of what we did. So she had a nice uh, response uh, to her uh, primary surgery uh, followed by adjuvant carbopaclitaxel. Um, and uh, she was found, uh, so we reflexed to a germline uh, test and she was found to have a BRCA2 mutation. Um, so we started her on a Laparib um, and we waited uh, four weeks. Um, some people wait less, some people wait longer. Uh, I find that um, I, I try to wait at least four weeks, uh, or you can sort of, uh, conflate the side effects from recovering from chemo with PARP. And I find that if you get the patient off to a bad start, she was not frail. She was uh, young, healthy, uh, very, uh, ri uh, vigorous exerciser and so forth. So I felt comfortable starting her at four weeks. Um, and, uh, she got through, um, two years of treatment. Uh, really without very much in, in terms of problems. Her biggest uh, issue was, was that of uh, fatigue. Uh, we took a couple weeks off here and there, but uh, no more than a week or 10 days at any one point. How do you decide between olaparib and niraparib in patients with BRCA germline mutations? I'll admit for me, there's a bit of a halo effect from solo one because you have a large phase three trial uh, that looked at these patients and it was done first. So now we have this wonderful long-term data that's come out. Um, you know, Katie Moore originally presented it and Susanna Bandry, you know, so we have all, the, all these uh, data sets uh, that have continued to evolve. Um, and now with OS data at seven years and so forth, that was just presented at ESMO in Paris. So, I mean, it, I think it's, it's really reassuring. Does, do I think uh, that niraparib would do worse. I, I, do, I do not. I, I think that I'd be comfortable with either one. 
And so if she started having a lot of problems with GI or something else, um, I, I would have probably switched her over uh, to Neuraparib, which, by the way, is also FDA indicated there. If you had the option, would you also be open to using Rucaparib? If I had the option, I would. Uh, I, I, I don't believe that uh, I have any concerns in terms of a diminution in efficacy. Uh, let's go to your uh, third case, your last case, the uh, 64-year-old lady. She presented, the 64-year-old woman presented with a large pelvic mass. She had a mental cake with carcinomatosis. So again, pretty familiar picture as you're starting to see here with advanced stage ovarian cancer. And unfortunately, most of our patients are advanced stage. So probably almost 75, 80% of the patients I see are stage three or four at the time of diagnosis. So CA125 elevated. Um, performance status was good. And she, under, she underwent a primary cytor reduction, um, had fair amount of disease. It was probably one of those patients that was uh, questionable. Um, but what led us to do this is she was highly symptomatic from her mass. So she was having trouble eating. She was having bladder uh, spasms with the mass pushing on her bladder. She was having trouble with bowel movements. We had her on a full liquid diet, in fact, the week or 10 days before surgery because uh, she was having uh, real trouble evacuating stool. I think the mass was just pushing at the pelvic brim on, on the colon and, and obstructing there, uh, pseudo obstruction. So I think that uh, that was what pushed us to do this. And, and uh, we were in there and we thought we could get this down to at least uh, optimal, which we did. But she had some small volume disease. Um, it was scattered on the surface of the bowel sort of diffusely on uh, some of the areas of the peritoneum. We got all the major areas uh, cleaned up. We did as much as we could on the bowel surface, but uh, there was too many areas. There was not a focal area where we could have resected and gotten her to R0. So that's how she ended up where she was. She then underwent chemotherapy, um, had a complete response based on imaging as well as her uh, I believe she normalized her CA125. I think I have that on there. And then uh, her genetic testing, um, turns out she's HRD negative and does not have a BRCA mutation, obviously, with that as well. So then the question is, you know, would you give her maintenance therapy at this point? Um, and so options here would be she was not on BEV, um, so that would be a bit of an odd thing to start BEV. Um, we, convent, we tend to use it with chemo uh, and then in maintenance. Um, has anyone ever done that? I haven't done it. Uh, I can't think of doing it recently at all. Um, I know others who have done it as an option, uh, just started it, even though that uh, is not how GOG218 or ICON-7 were conducted. Um, so really the, the choices in my mind here are to use uh, neuraparib or to uh, do close surveillance. Um, and uh, we started this woman on uh, neuraparib, uh, if I remember, yep. Um, so uh, I took you through all, I think the first part there, let's see if there's anything that, no, I think we covered all that stage 3C. She did not have high grade serous, she had an endometroid. Uh, which, by the way, was a histology that was allowed on these maintenance trials as well. So we feel pretty good about uh, that histology. 
resp- being responsive to a PARP inhibitor. Um, and we talked to her about what she wanted to do. She was someone who was very, uh, she had joined the support group uh, in our area and had talked to a lot of patients that had been on maintenance and, and sort of was of the mindset that maintenance is part of what I should get with frontline treatment. Uh, most of the people she had developed a relationship uh, with who had had ovarian cancer that were recently treated had all had uh, maintenance of some type. So she wanted the maintenance and we settled on the rap rib. Uh, we, we talked about, you know, the advantages that we saw as well as some of the toxicities that we would be concerned about. She did not weigh very much. Um, so, uh, she was probably 125, 130 pounds, so she fell under that 77 kilogram. So by weights and plates uh, criteria, she was started at the lower dose. So not instead of 300 milligrams QD, she was started at 200 milligrams and really did pretty well. She had some a uh, little bit of platelet issues the first uh, month, um, and we held uh not for very long, three or four days rechecked and they had returned uh, to normal. She never had any bleeding issues or anything like that. So we did not, uh, I was concerned in going down any further, which would be a third of the uh, original label dose. Um, So we were able to keep her at 200. And like many of these patients on PARPs, most of their symptoms seem to get better. So if you can get them through the first two months or so, uh, things kind of go to autopilot. Um, they figure, they start figuring things out, uh, the help of our pharmacists and our team, we're usually able to make any adjustments in terms of nausea meds or anything like that. Occasionally you have to start something like a lanzapine or something like that in terms of controlling the nausea, but, uh, it's not that common. We can usually do it with the 5-HT3 drugs. And so, um, she did well. And, uh, I, I think, um, you know, she's pretty typical uh, of what we see with patients that present with these large masses. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Herzog, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.